Welcome to Just Listen, a celebration of literature from Nashville Public Library. For more stories and poetry, visit our website at library.nashville.org. Please feel free to leave a comment or to make requests or recommendations. And now, for today's selection. Thomas Reed Pearson, a.k.a. T.R. Pearson, is fun, fun, fun to read. If you haven't yet encountered this very imaginative author, you're in for a treat today. What a story we have to tell here at Just Listen. Today's selection, The Last of How It Was, reads like a stream-of-consciousness story, but with less punctuation. The running nature of Pearson's sentences can vie for authority on the page with Henry James and the best of those other literary lights who go dim with the suggestion of the use of a period or pause. Reading T.R. Pearson aloud requires capacious lungs, the phrasing of a blues singer, and a deep appreciation for the deliciousness of the South's unique storytelling tradition. If I were going to try to explain to someone what the Southern literary tradition is about, this story would feature in my top three selections. This is the man, yes indeed, the very one, I reckon. It's hard to tell you exactly what kind of a story this is. It's a tale of deep loss and redemption, perhaps a pay-in to family values, a didactic story with biblical undercurrents, or maybe just the latest news from the creeks and woods of North Carolina. You'll have to decide. And now, for your listening pleasure, The Last of How It Was, by T.R. Pearson. My mama's aunt's sister wanted to know wasn't that pure frothiness if anything was, and though we all figured, yes, we guessed it was pure frothiness exactly, aunt sister felt obliged to supply us with a frothy moment from the Wolf Island Creek cotton side of the family, too, but she could not come up with one straight away, and so daddy set in on the frothy moment chief in his mind, which was actually the frothy moment chief in aunt sister's mind as well, that she had, in fact, come up with straight away, but had kept to herself as it seemed an indelicate frothy moment, ill-suited for mixed company. So Daddy said there'd been this gang of cottons, and Mama told him, Lewis, bending it upward some like she was prone to, and Aunt Sister told him, Lewis, bending it some herself. And Daddy said there'd been this gang of cottons that were all nephews and cousins and brothers to Mr. Robert Earl Cotton, one of the prominent elder cottons of the home place, and they had thrown together to be a gang on behalf of Mr. Robert Earl himself, who was having what Daddy called difficulties, and got told Lewis again by Mama and by Aunt Sister, too, and so Daddy called them acute difficulties and lit a territon. Daddy said Mr. Robert Earl Cotton liked to taste every now and again, which just meant most all the time for Mr. Robert Earl Cotton, who only called it every now and again to appease Mrs. Robert Earl Cotton, a firm Christian woman who did not believe anybody should be doing anything most all the time, least of all drinking, which she did not believe anybody should be doing even every now and again. And so Mr. Robert Earl Cotton called it every now and again, actually implying a rarely and only once in a while. And he kept his bottle out back of the house in the tool shed behind a plank. And he did not visit it but every day, which was his every now and again and once in a while, too. Now, Daddy said Mr. Robert Earl Cotton had a woman friend, which would be a woman friend aside from Mrs. Robert Earl Cotton, who lived through the woods towards Oregon Hill and operated what Daddy called a cottage industry. And he liked it so much, he said it again and got a rise out of Aunt's sister, who squirted some air out between her lips before she lay her fingers atop them. Daddy said this woman friend of Mr. Robert Earl Cotton's did not manufacture any palpable item, not so as you'd notice anyhow, 
But instead, she provided what Daddy called favors and charged what Daddy called a fee. And Daddy said business was most extraordinarily good most all the time, primarily on account of the vast array of cottons in what Daddy called the private sector. Cottons being more naturally attentive to their servicing than your ordinary people. And Daddy said Mr. Robert Earl Cotton was certainly not the exception, though likely not the rule either, since Mr. Robert Earl Cotton struck out through the woods near about as often as he struck out to the tool shed, and weren't any cottons otherwise that could keep pace with him. But there came to be some trouble, Daddy said, and he indicated the frothy moment was fairly much at hand. Seems Mr. Robert Earl Cotton grew incapable, or anyhow Daddy called it incapable and explained to me primarily how there was a serviceable condition and an unserviceable condition, and Mr. Robert Earl Cotton grew incapable of everything but the latter, which he was not generally capable of, but only half the time, if that much, and consequently he could strike out through the woods well enough, but could not participate in any sort of transaction once he got to where he was going or anyhow could not participate in hardly any of the usual transactions on account of the fact that he was not himself, as Daddy called it, and Mama told him, all right, just about the same way Daddy tended to tell it to her. Daddy said Mr. Robert Earl Cotton's persistent, unserviceable condition troubled him considerably, and he wondered at the why of it and the how of it and did some wishing and even did some praying, too, which Mrs. Robert Earl Cotton caught him in at the bedside, and she became ecstatic and rapturous straight off. Howsomever, things had not seemed to improve very much, and Mr. Robert Earl Cotton had come to believe he might not ever transact again and so was casting around to find something to blame it on when he came across the jar behind the plank in the tool shed. And he held it up in the light to study and hypothesize over, and naturally it seemed to him right off that if such a potion could render people blind and dead and variously afflicted, it could almost surely render a solitary cotton incapable. Of course, it was all just theory and all hypothesis at the outset, but once Mr. Robert Earl Cotton had explained his predicament and had explained his views to his nephews and brothers and cousins, they threw in together directly and elected the liquor the guilty element outright, since they were not any of them of a hypothetical and theoretical bent, least not so as you'd remark it straight off, Daddy said. Of course, they decided directly to do something. They did not know what something exactly, but something wild and gang-like and frothy, too. And they pretty much figured, as they could not render Mr. Robert Earl Cotton any less incapable than he was, well, they might go ahead and render some capable somebody else incapable, too. And they figured that might as well be the Sadler Montgomery that had brewed and sold the liquor. Or, if not the Sadler Montgomery, then someone of his relations who might be so disfortunate as to get handy and available. So they set out to Sadler, still wild and still gang-like and increasingly frothy, and most of them walked, except for Mr. Robert Earl Cotton himself and his brother James Pugh and James Pugh's boy, James Pugh Jr., that drove the wagon that his uncle and daddy sat in the back of, or actually just his daddy sat in the back of, while his uncle lay stretched out atop a quilt and under a blanket with a sack beneath his head, and got tended to and seen after by James Pugh Sr., who had decided, along with the rest of his nephews and brothers and cousins, that incapability was likely the kind of thing that needed tending to and seeing after, that it was surely not the kind of thing that was going to benefit much from a brisk walk, 
So Mr. Robert Earl Cotton got nursed along by his next least brother, who was not much acquainted with nursing practices, really, except for the laying of wet rags. And so he laid one wherever he could find a place to, though not anywhere near the source of the incapability itself, since Mr. Robert Earl Cotton and James Pugh together did not see as that would improve things very much, the rags being wet and the water being cold and the problem being, well, what it was anyhow. Now, the saddle Montgomery lived back off a dirt road, off an oiled road, and kept his still and his liquor under a ledge down by the Wolf Island Creek, which is where this gang of cottons headed to straight off so as to bust up the still and pour out the liquor. They followed two old ruts down to the ruined grist mill and then turned upstream along the creek bank, beating back the brush for the elder afflicted cotton, who got helped along by his brother sometimes and sometimes by his nephews and cousins as well, and they fairly much held him up and propelled him also, since the tendon to in the sea and after had pretty completely weakened and diminished his resolve to be fit and his resolve to be well, and he so utterly gave himself over to his incapability that he could not but drag his feet and gasp and whee and such as that. Naturally, the gang of cottons found the gasping and the wheezing and such what Daddy called inspirational, and once they had reached the ledge with the still and the liquor beneath it, they set about venting themselves straight off. The cousins primarily stomped the vats and the tubing and the paraphernalia, while the nephews dumped the grain and the sugar into the creek, and the brothers commenced to pour out the finished and refined product from all the various jars and jugs round about or anyhow poured out the finished and refined product until Mr. Robert Earl Cotton himself, who had been propped against a hickory tree, suggested that perhaps they should not pour out all the finished and refined product, suggested that perhaps they should reserve some few pints and maybe some few quarts too, suggested that perhaps they might want to keep a taste of the medicine to give to the doctor himself. And Daddy said the Cotton brothers and nephews and cousins too pondered Mr. Robert Earl Cotton all perplexed and squinty, and then pondered each other some as well, since aside from not being hypothetically and theoretically bent, not any of them were bent much figuratively either. And so they all wanted to know from each other what doctor and what medicine, whereas they could not comprehend which was the one and what was the other. Naturally, Mr. Robert Earl Cotton generated considerable enthusiasm with his plan to introduce the pints and the quartz, too, direct into the Saddler Montgomery, thereby rendering him somewhat incapable himself, though maybe just stricken and nauseated, which was not the sort of discomfiture they were after exactly, but all the Cottons together decided they would settle for and feel gratified by, just stricken and just nauseated also, if they could not produce any true manner of incapability. So they came up out of the creek bottom by way of the grist mill ruts all agitated and purposeful, with Mr. Robert Earl Cotton hauled along at the forefront by two of his brothers, followed up by his nephews with the pints and his cousins with the quarts of what they were all calling medicine anymore, and James Pugh and James Pugh's boy, James Pugh Jr., bringing up the rear as their draft horse could not get the wagon up the ruts like he had got it down them. Now, the Saddle of Montgomery had dropped off to sleep in a big stuffed armchair in the front room and had left the kerosene lamp burning unattended on the table beside him, since he had not much intended to drop off to sleep, but had pretty completely medicated himself throughout the course of the evening, and so did drop off anyway, which left the kerosene lamp to burn unattended beside him, and it did burn with quite a handsome flame that eased on down the wick and into the basin. And so the lamp was most thoroughly lit by the time Mr. Robert Earl Cotton got propped up on the front porch from where he banged on the door with his fist. 
Of course, the saddler Montgomery did not know it was the banging that had woke him up, and figured straight away it was the inferno instead, or anyhow what appeared to him like an inferno at the outset, since he generally roused up from a sleep all squinty and perplexed himself. And he leaped up from the stuffed chair right sharply and got his naked feet all wrapped and tangled in the loose galluses of his overhauls. But he managed to snatch the lamp up off the table anyhow and stumble with it to the front door, which he flung open direct into the propped-up and afflicted cotton, who had not expected the front door to open out, since his own front door at his own house did not open out, and as best he could recollect did not any of his brother's door at their own houses open out either. So understandably one, the thing hit him flush, he pitched off the porch backward, partly from the force of it, but partly from surprise and incapability too. And the saddler Montgomery pulled up short of the lip of the porch and hurled the flaming lamp on out into the front yard, which he did not realize was full of relations of the cotton he had just knocked off his front porch that he did not yet know he had knocked off his front porch. Consequently, then, the saddler Montgomery was verily astounded to discover just what company he had and where. Or anyhow, Daddy called it verily astounded straight off, until Mama and Aunt Sister threw in together and objected to Verily Astounded, as it did not seem to them a thing a Sadler Montgomery could be. Especially not Aunt Sister, who endeavored to picture Verily Astounded on the face of the Sadler Montgomery, but announced how she could not on account of the disharmonious elements involved, the Sadler Montgomery being the one and the Verily Astounded being the other. Aunt Sister insisted there were some rules, some properties to the telling of a thing, Rules and properties which Daddy was taxing mightily due to his blending and mingling of the verily astounded, which Aunt Sister felt to be a fitting and near-about imperial expression, with the lowly Sadler Montgomery, who could not have been any more unfitting and unimperial and stayed human, or that's how Aunt Sister saw it anyhow, and she asked Mama, didn't she see it just precisely the same, and Mama told her, just precisely, and then looked at Daddy the way Aunt Sister was already looking at him, and Daddy chewed on his lip a little bit and then drew a teratin out of his shirt pocket. So he said the saddle of Montgomery flung the lamp on out into the yard where the chimbley broke and the flames spread, thereby illuminating the majority of the cottons which the whole fiery business had landed in the midst of. And Daddy observed how the saddle of Montgomery was straight off struck plumb shitless by what company he had and where, and though Daddy paused to accommodate critical appraisal, critical appraisal did not ensue. They set on him, Daddy said, set on him in a wild and frothy fit, all but for Mr. Robert Earl Cotton himself, who had landed on his back atop the packed dirt that Mrs. Sadler Montgomery called her flower bed, and was just commencing to touch and feel all round about himself so as to determine what of his parts and pieces that had not been incapable before were maybe incapable now, at least partly and somewhat anyhow. So it was just a healthy dozen and a half or so of them that set in on the Sadler Montgomery, all wild and all frothy, and naturally the thing was not fair, and not just either, as it was sole and solitary, the Sadler Montgomery that got set on, and him all tangled up in his loose galluses, and still perplexed and still squinty, too. So the ones without the pints and the quartz commenced to beat him, and the ones with the pints and the quartz commenced to kick him, and in the midst of the fray which was not one of your more hotly contested phrase since there was only the one side to it, the side of Montgomery's trousers slipped clean off his hips and dropped down around his ankles, while his undershirt just deteriorated to the point of absolute invisibility. Consequently, then, the Sadler Montgomery got beat and pummeled into near about pure nakedness, but for the trousers, which he was only wearing somewhat, and the cottons with the pints and the quartz gathered round about the Sadler Montgomery and began to pour what liquid they had into him, 
which seemed to the Sather Montgomery a reprieve of sorts from the beating and the pummeling, and he did not mind so much that they banged his teeth every now and again with the jar rims, since they'd left off banging everything else otherwise. Now, Mr. Robert Earl Cotton was desirous to pour a little bit of the liquor himself, and Daddy observed how in the symbolical way of things it would only be proper for him to do at least a part of the pouring, and he asked Aunt Sister, didn't she see it just precisely the same? But Aunt Sister did not let on she did exactly, maybe on account of the desirous, and likely on account of the symbolical, too. So Mr. Robert Earl Cotton got hepped up by a brother on one arm and by a cousin on the other, and once he was on his feet, he discovered that he had not after all rendered anything else incapable, in addition to the original incapable thing, and he found as well that he felt up to pummeling the Sadler Montgomery a little himself, and so he did pummel him a little, and naturally the Sadler Montgomery, who was getting fairly much fed up with all the beating and the pummeling and the pouring, "'Wondered at the elder Cotton how come for all of it, "'though not in so many words exactly, but just said, "'Hey!' "'So as to reveal the thoroughgoing incomprehensibility of it all. "'And Daddy paused and asked Aunt Sister, "'Just precisely?' "'But Aunt Sister did not tell him just precisely then either. "'Daddy didn't know was it the naked flesh "'or was it the pummeling or was it the sweat stink "'in combination with the liquor stink and the pummeling "'and only partly the naked flesh "'on account of whose naked flesh it was anyhow, "'the who in this case being the Sadler Montgomery "'and the flesh in this case being all over the place. "'And Daddy asked me had I ever heard of the Greek gods and such, "'asked me had I ever even seen a picture of one, "'Zeus maybe, with his muscles all wavy along his stomach, and the rest of himself all wavy, too. And I told him, yes, sir. And Daddy told me back this had not been Zeus exactly. Not wavy, Daddy said. Not anywhere. To hear Daddy tell it, to view the naked Sadler Montgomery was to come clean to grips with the laws of physics, as the Sadler Montgomery was primarily gravity on parade. Everything falling, Daddy told it, and Aunt Sister added, just precisely, without even being asked, too. So Daddy did not suspect it was the naked flesh, but maybe only slightly and somewhat, and instead he indicated the sweat stink and the liquor stink and especially the pummeling, which altogether constituted what Daddy called the vigor of the moment. And as Daddy saw it, the vigor of the moment itself had brought about the stirring that did indeed get brought about deep down in the very heart of Mr. Robert O'Cotton's incapability. Daddy said the one manner of excitement had just got translated and transformed into another manner of excitement entirely, and he wondered did we understand the logic of it, and Mama told him quick and hard just how well we comprehended the whole business. Apparently, Mr. Robert Earl Cotton comprehended the whole business himself some straightaway, and he commenced to ponder the various sorts of things that would likely prod and cultivate the stirring still yet even further. And the sorts of things he did ponder— which Daddy gave out just as your general commerce mostly, did in fact prod and did in fact cultivate the stirring into something more elaborate than a stirring, really, and the relative novelty of the sensation struck the elder Cotton dumb at least momentarily. Momentarily enough, anyhow, for James Pugh, Jr., to fetch his jackknife up out from his shirt where the strap around his neck had let it dangle— and then opened the thing, and suggested to his uncle how outright incapability was not hardly anything the liquor and the pummeling, too, seemed entirely able to render without assistance anyhow. And he rotated the assistance in the air so as to let the moonlight glint off the blade of it. 
But Mr. Robert Earl Cotton did not hear the suggesting, and did not see the assistance either, and only intended the, well, all right, that he did in fact say, as a means of approval and congratulations for those parts of his own self that had got noticeably lively of a sudden. But of course the all right applied otherwise as well, and James Jr. took it otherwise straight off, as did the rest of the nephews and the cousins and the uncles too, the majority of whom closed in tight around the Sadler Montgomery and attempted to restrain at least some little piece of him, as the Sadler Montgomery had commenced to object most strenuously to his predicament and had commenced to argue against it and wonder at it and set it with a hey or two anyhow, which Daddy said was an expression of great utility to him. Daddy supposed they'd have gone right ahead and removed from the saddle of Montgomery that part of him that they were threatening to remove, since heat and frothiness generally produce in people a zeal for things they would not have a zeal for otherwise. But Daddy said what the Cottons were all worked up and zealous about did not have much to do with any actual cutting or any actual whacking, which surely would have brought about some extraordinarily actual bleeding. And instead, they were utterly caught up in the justice of the thing and the general rightness of it on account of these were your basic and fundamental eyes for eyes and teeth for teeth and incapabilities for incapabilities sort of people, Daddy called it. So while they stayed hot and stayed frothy to do what fit and do what suited, did not anybody want to take up in his fingers that part of the Sadler Montgomery that somebody would have to take up in his fingers if it was to be shorn away? And anyhow, did not anybody want to shear away that part of the Sadler Montgomery that had to get taken up in somebody's fingers, even if it ever did in fact get taken up? Not even James Pugh Jr., who fetched up his jackknife up out of his shirt quick enough, had shown off the blade in the moonlight pretty enough, but had never before shown up really stuck it in a human, and so just figured he would out loud, but not anywhere else, really. That was the dilemma then, Daddy said. That was the predicament and the circumstance. You had your Sadler Montgomery all naked and quizzical, Daddy called it, and the bulk of your cottons latched onto some little piece of him, though not any one of them even in the general vicinity of that little piece of him that James Pugh Jr. had had his jackknife out to cut and whack on, which he did not intend to cut and whack on anyhow, but just had announced he would, and so felt compelled to seem about to. And Daddy said it was a scene of some considerable weight and complexity like on an antique canvas, some sort of framed and gallery-hung antique canvas with some sort of framed and gallery-hung antique canvas title. The moneylenders cast out from the temple, he said. Or the calling of St. Matthew, he said. Or Jacob, he said, wrestling with the angel. And then Daddy pondered the thing, taking into account the weight of it and taking into account the complexity of it, prior to laying his chin on the heel of his hand and telling Mama and telling Aunt Sister and telling even me too, the peril of the Sadler Montgomery's organ. And Mama would have told Daddy herself it was pure blasphemy all of it every bit, but Aunt Sister beat her to it, as Aunt Sister could get offended and draw a responsive breath all at once while Mama could not do but the one thing at a time. Daddy said they were simply stuck between solutions the one being to forge ahead and the other being to back away. And as he figured it, they were likely on a line to the former, not because any particular and specific cotton out of all the cottons together wanted to see the thing whacked on and cut, but mostly because it was all the cottons together, and not just particular and specific cottons apart. A whole gang of cottons, actually, near about a mob of them. And Daddy said gangs and Daddy said mobs, too, did not much care for the particular and for the specific. 
So likely things were pretty much up with that Sadler Montgomery, or anyhow one item was pretty much up with him in a manner of speaking, or would have been pretty much up with him if another similar item on the elder cotton had not itself got suddenly pretty much up in another manner of speaking entirely. And the elder cotton that had stood still and silent and utterly transfixed flared up into some genuine liveliness and raised both his arms over his head and capered round in a circle one time and hooted and yelped and hollered, All right! Hollered, God Almighty! But not until they'd leapt clean off the Sadler Montgomery's big front porch and struck out across the yard towards the tree line in Oregon Hill. Naturally, the rest of the cottons grew astounded straight off, and all of them together watched Mr. Robert Earl for as far as they could watch him, and then listened to him after, listened to him beating himself a path through the woods in the thick dark, with nothing but his paraphernalia to guide him, which Daddy said was a compass and a sextant and a bloodhound too. Of course, he did not appear distraught any longer, and did not appear afflicted. Leastwise, he did not appear afflicted in that burdened and encumbered sense of the thing. Or anyhow, he had not appeared afflicted to the gang of his relations for that brief, lively moment when he had capered and stomped and hooted and yelped and hollered, prior to leaping to and then bolting even. And it was suggested by a nephew and then by an uncle after that maybe he was cured, that maybe he was not incapable any longer. And the rest of the relations decided together that likely it was, in fact, a miracle, along with the Sadler Montgomery, who insisted it was purely miraculous to him, as he was looking to be agreeable anyhow. And Daddy said it did indeed have all the trappings of a miracle, and was somewhat like the loaves and the fishes, but more truly akin to the wellspring in the desert. And while it did not feed the hordes or quench the parched multitudes, it did, in fact, prevent the Sadler Montgomery from toting his organ off in his pocket, which was just what he'd resigned himself to toting his organ off in. So he was most noticeably struck with wonderment and with awe. But the bulk of the cottons were struck some themselves. And Daddy said the heat and the frothiness dissipated and fell away directly, like heat and frothiness will. And all the cottons together, and the Sadler Montgomery too, looked off to the tree line towards Oregon Hill, where they could not see Mr. Robert Earl any longer, but could hear him well enough, could hear him snapping off twigs and stomping the brush underfoot, en route to his purgation and his relief, which would be the bed, and which would be the woman friend atop it, and which would most especially be the ensuing commerce once him and her got together so as to transact, I told Daddy, and Daddy said back, Yes, sir, and Daddy said back, Just precisely. Thanks for joining us. Tune in to another session of Just Listen by visiting your Nashville Public Library website at library.nashville.org.